Let us begin with prayer. <clears throat> Lord, as we consider your word this afternoon, may we hear a true and living word from the one who is the living word, even Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I want to refer you to page one of your handout. And in effect, there are kind of two meditations today. Uh, one is contained in your handout, and it is uh, a rather close reading of Psalm 23. And I invite you to uh, look at the notes when you get home uh, and read some of the reflections towards the end. Um, there is much there in the notes that I don't get a chance to address uh, in the course of the sermon. And we are beginning a series on the Psalms. And for the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at key Psalms. The Psalms tell a story together about Jesus, and they also give us guidance in the Christian life. And these poems, not the least, Psalm 23, has meant a great deal to many of you, I know. Let me just read it once more on page one, and you'll notice some differences from the children's version um, that are perhaps um, helpful by, per, by point of comparison. We have four motifs, a shepherd, a guide, a host, and a beneficent stalker. Yahweh is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside restful waters. He revives my core self. He leads me into the right paths as his character deems fit. Even if I walk through a deathly dark valley, I shall fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, tis they that encourage me. You set a lavish table for me in plain view of my foes. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loyalty will pursue me my whole life long, and I shall return to the house of Yahweh for the entirety of days. There is a skeleton outline on the top of page five of what I propose to say today in the form of a more kind of formal homily or sermon than I normally give. I wish time allowed me to hear what this psalm has meant to you. I know it means a lot to most of you for special reasons that I won't learn today. And that is a shame. So it falls to me alone to comment on Psalm 23. And I shall do so this afternoon by asking a single question and offering four possible answers. One question, four possible answers. So here first is the question, and it comes from the opening lines of the psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall lack nothing. How might we respond to the idea that God is a good shepherd, a lavish provider, as it were? How should you and I respond to the truth that Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel and the church, made known to us spectacularly in Jesus, a generous, abundant provider? I ask the question one more time for clarity's sake. How should we respond to the idea that God is, for you, a loving shepherd provider? Well, you know Psalm 23, and so you know it leaves no doubt that God, being loving and generous is implicit to the psalm. In Psalm 23, King David tells us that God has 
pampered him like a loving shepherd and a generous host. And what David says here about God, the New Testament also says about Jesus, who, as we read in John 10, is the good shepherd. Both Psalm 23 and John 10 talk about the tender care that a good shepherd extends to his sheep. He feeds them, waters them, tends to their wounds, protects them, and so on. In John's gospel, Jesus the good shepherd even goes so far as to give up his life for us sheep. These are but some of the truths lying behind our question, how might we respond to the truth that God is the lavish caregiver? As I mentioned, there are four possible answers. There are more, of course, but I will consider only four. And each of these four answers will come in two word phrases. The first beginning with the letter F and the second beginning with the letter C. And those of you who are local soccer fans might remember this by thinking of Toronto FC, the Toronto Football Club. So here's the first and it might surprise you, but perhaps not if you're honest. And that would be deny the truth of what I'm saying altogether. The first possible response then, though not one that I recommend, is flagrant cynicism. The Lord is the great provider. Yeah, sure. As I was preparing this sermon, I couldn't help but relate to a sense of flagrant cynicism that might, some of you might be experiencing even right now. Take, for example, the recent earthquake in Morocco, the war in Ukraine, the problem of homelessness in Toronto and elsewhere, or prayers that we offer that seem so simple for God to answer, but which yet for some reason or another are not. Such simple, vital things like a job, like a child, like an affordable place to rent. Flagrant cynicism is an option, an all-too-common one, but it is never to be a lasting option for the person of faith. My friends, flagrant cynicism isn't the best or right answer for all kinds of reasons. Look more carefully at Psalm 23 and you'll some, see some reasons why. First, neither John, Psalm 23 nor John 10 is denying that bad things happen to good people. The title of Psalm 23 links our psalm with King David, a man who more than once fled for his life from the hands of an insanely jealous and powerful King Saul. The psalm itself admits of the possibility of going through the well-known valley of the shadow of death. And it is, of course, no coincidence that this most comforting psalm of all, 23, lives right next door to the most agonizing of all psalms, Psalm 22. It's as if one tempers the other, as if to check the reality or at least broaden the scope of the truth of the other. And the painful forsaken spirit of Psalm 22 is not an exception. There are many psalms like that, especially at the beginning of the book of Psalms. And in John's gospel, Jesus is the good shepherd over against wicked shepherds who are in his very midst and who are acting, as we read, against the good shepherd. Well, here's a second reason not to respond with flagrant cynicism. The psalm is not a promise or an assurance that we will experience this in life. It's a poem, not a promissory note. 
So if you doubt the portrait of Psalm 23 this afternoon, note with me that this is not pie-in-the-sky theology. It is a psalm that expresses the experience of David, who knows that this is the way in which God wants to treat him and in a way in which God will treat him on the last day. My friends, in spite of all that happens in the world and in our lives, Psalm 23 affirms this wonderful, assuring, and startling truth. That God's ideal will for you is to experience the tender care that he often does show us in this life and that he promises to show us in the next. I say that again, God's ideal will for you, regardless of what your appearances might be at the present, is to experience the tender care that he often does show us in this life and that he promises to show us his followers in the next. So then there's one reason, one, one way to respond, flagrant cynicism, and I pray that you will not respond this way, or if you do, will at least come your way through it in the way that the Psalms themselves help us through lament. A second more positive way comes by way of another FC phrase, namely fearless comfort. Fearless comfort. This is certainly the response Psalm 23 wants us to walk away with. Think of the words, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for thou art with me. David is whispering into your ear and mine as we read, and saying this, even in the worst circumstances, have no fear, God is present with you. When uh, I was a young lad, uh, I was in a house with a growing family, and uh, I was moved to a bedroom in the basement when my younger brother came along. And uh, beside my bedroom was a door that led to the crawl space, and it was an unfinished part of the house with a low roof, not very good lighting, and I was convinced that some monster lived in that crawl space. And I can remember being sent to bed sometimes, and I would dash down the stairs, and then I would just run as fast as I could past the crawl space door and then leap on the bed because, of course, there might also be boogie people under the bed. But it's very different when my dad than when my dad or my older brother were around to take me to bed because then I would ride on their shoulders. And as I went past the boogie door leading into the crawl space, you were almost cocky. You could just kind of go to the boogeyman in the crawl space and you didn't have to worry about what was under the bed. The psalmist is saying exactly the same thing here. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for you are with me. And then he goes on to add, in the rest of verse 4, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Think about those two things for a second, the rod and the staff. The rod is a staff that can be used for protection, like a club that uh, can be used as a billy stick. But it can also be used as a scepter, and as such could be symbolic of the authority of King David and also that of our Lord Jesus. To harm one of God's sheep, then, is to wrestle with the billy stick in the shepherd's hand, the landowner of the cosmos, and somebody's powerful, attentive king. And as for the staff, it's an instrument that can be used to direct us sheep, to give us a prod when we need one, or more basically as a crutch to support those of us sheep who are injured. 
Look in your notes and you'll see two places in the prophets where the word staff is used to describe a staff made of reeds. And when you lean on it, if it's, a, if it's an insecure staff like Egypt, it splinters and it actually cuts holes in your arm. You want a secure staff that you can lean on that will not shatter and harm you. The image of a sheep protected by a club and a staff reminds me of a scene that's well known to Canadians if you were around and old enough to observe television in 1980. I'm dating myself. It is the Terry Fox walk across the Trans-Canada Highway. Think of Terry Fox, if you will, as one of God's sheep. He was a victim of bone cancer. And perhaps you've seen on a wall or you've seen in a picture album or you're old enough to remember seeing on television a picture of him on the news walking along the roadside of the Trans-Canada Highway with one false leg. Terry Fox's mission was to walk from one corner of the country to the other, and he only made it as far as Ontario, having started in St. John's, Newfoundland. But what I remember the most about Terry Fox's pictures is that behind him was a police car with flashing lights. And I believe that towards the end of his pilgrimage, there was also an ambulance that went. Here's this brave young man afflicted by, con by cancer with one leg hobbling along and behind him is a symbol of protection and another a symbol of support, the police car and the ambulance respectively. I like that picture and I'd like to suggest that as you and I hobble down the road, we ought to hold up a mirror in our minds and see behind us God's police car and God's ambulance. That's the kind of protection and support that God is committed to providing us. So says Psalm 23. And that ought to provide us, I suggest, with fearless comfort on the journey ahead. I've been jumping a little bit all over our psalm. That's okay. It's about God's fearless comfort and his presence from beginning to end, the tender, thoughtful, loving care that God ideally desires for us all. Verse 1 begins with a summary of the whole psalm. God's ideal desire for us as his sheep is that we lack nothing. He's committed to providing us with everything that we need and with exuberance and flair. Friends, notice, however, from verses 2 to 3 that, psalm, that, that verses 2 to 3 do not equate God's provision with extraneous material things. It focuses on the basics, water, soul care, guidance, comfort, protection. In other words, it does not say, he makes me lie down in the fully reclined leather front seat of a BMW. No, he writes, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Presumably the sheep is already eaten, and now he can lie down knowing that he's safe under the care of the shepherd, and he's right beside more green pastures. And when he's thirsty, he can walk alongside um, a stream that may have been built up to create um, water that was slow moving. Yesterday, I uh, took some friends, um, Josh and Easter from Korea, to uh, High Falls near Bracebridge. And the falls were scary, and the rocks were wet and slippery. But beside the falls, there was a creek where the water was very calm. 
And it was the same water source, but here was one area where it was dangerous and another area where you could just kind of walk alongside. We even took a picture together there beside those peaceful waters. That's the kind of care and attention that God here is described as giving us. This motif is picked up in descriptions of Jesus feeding the 5,000 in Mark. Turn to your notes for a minute just to give you a little thumb exercise to pages seven and eight. And you'll notice that in the story of the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark chapter six, Jesus, I believe, picks up on the imagery of him being a shepherd. One who was predicted, for example, in the book of Israel, who would come and regather the, tribe, regather the tribes of Israel whom former kings had scattered away. He says, to his disciples, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to rest. So they go on the boat away by themselves, and crowds follow. And we read in verse 34, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like, what? Sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. He's feeding them by his word. And then he feeds them practically with food. The disciples say this is a desolate place. The hour's late. We should probably dismiss the crowds. But Jesus says, you give them something to eat. We know the story well. The disciples sort of say, how could we possibly feed a crowd like this? Jesus says in verse 39, as we turn to page 8, Jesus commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, and he said a blessing, and he broke the loaves, and he gave them to the disciples, and set them before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets left of broken pieces of the fish. My cup runneth over. God has provided in abundance. My friends, contrast this kind of practical care with what our culture says. Our economy is fueled by consumerism that says we need this and we need that. Sometimes I like to watch a show with my wife about home renovations. And it typically starts out where there's a couple that buy a house and they've got a certain amount of money and they walk into the kitchen and the kitchen's perfectly useful. I mean, it's got cupboards, it's got a table, but they say, oh, the counter has got to go, and they want, to, they want granite, and the cupboards, oh, they're so 80s. Well, the doors open and swing. Jesus is, I think, reminding us in this passage that it's not the latest and the trendiest that we need, but it's simply a matter of uh, the basics, water, food, rest, and above all, God's presence. You know, as well as I do, I hope that there are a whole lot of wealthy people out there who've got fancy granite counter and empty souls and empty hearts. And it's far better to have a satisfied soul and a relationship with God and cupboards that date of all things to the 90s. Oh, my. My friends, God's will is by no means to begrudge the needful. On the contrary, he's glad when our basic needs are abundantly met. But there's no need for that fabulous kitchen makeover. 
because you'll still feel completely inside. The first word and the last word, the, the word of the first verse and the last verse, Yahweh, provide the biggest comfort that can ever be found. If we have God as our deepest need and meeting our most essential needs, we have what we need. We have everything that we need. And so the psalmist can say after his basic needs are met, not his ideal wishes, he revives my core self. So God is one who provides fearless comfort. The second point that I want to make in this, in this quadrilateral is not flagrant cynicism, fearless comfort, yes, but also faith in Christ, because you see, you cannot have fearless comfort without faith in Christ. And here I'm kind of interjecting into the psalm, as it were, some Christian theology, but I, I, I don't mind that at all. That's what we do. We read the whole Bible. And I want to suggest that it's only through another FC, that is faith in Christ. Yes, I'm fudging in English because the, because the in is there, but in the original language, it's simply faith, Christ, pistis Christu. And it's only through faith in Christ that we can experience the fearless comfort that the psalm has been talking about. And I want to remind us very briefly what it means to have faith in Christ, because some of us are earlier in our pilgrimage than others. Did you know that belief or faith in Christ is related to the idea of a witness giving legal testimony? One person who knows another testifies about that other person. So that those who don't know that other person, namely Jesus, will know what sort of person he is, as well as what things he did. That is why John wrote his gospel. He says, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This sort of redemptive faith in Christ has three components, and I'll go over them very briefly and then go to the last point briefly. The three components are believing, Believing in and believing that. Believing. Believing is simply giving assent to the reality of Jesus based on the eyewitness testimony that we find in the Gospels. As one who really lived, who taught his disciples, who performed miracles which no one questioned, not even his enemies, in support of his claim to be the Son of God, God come in human flesh. Then we are to believe in not just believe, but to believe in. And that means we kind of undergo a transfer where I decide that I'm actually going to place my trust in this person. I'm going to give my life to this person and allow Jesus to be the Lord of my life. That requires trust, but it also requires a trust in. It's a relational dynamic where your faith becomes a living, actual relationship with Jesus Christ, which comes through faith. And then thirdly, and this is unique to Christianity, believing that. You see, there are certain things that we are asked to believe. These are called core teachings or doctrines that are important. Namely, we believe that he is the Son of God, that his death built a bridge between us and God that we could cross over by faith to have eternal life. This is why Jesus, the Good Shepherd, in John 10, at least twice emphasized his death. He said, the Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 
and then he takes it up again through the resurrection. So Christians access this fearless comfort by having faith in Christ that comes through belief. And the belief is not just sort of intellectual belief, it's believing in and it's believing that. And if you have any questions about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, this lies at the core. And if you hear nothing else in this sermon, please hear this. Faith in Jesus Christ is what it's all about. It's a starting point and it's a lifelong relationship with Jesus that comes by what we like to call a personal relationship with him. There are any number of people here who would be happy to talk with you further about this this afternoon if you'd like. It would only be our joy to do that. Fourth and finally, a proper response to God's care, I suggest, should involve firm commitment. Firm commitment to what you ask. I suggest being proactive agents of God's tender care. In other words, we're to extend that care to others. Think of David. He was a shepherd king, and he says, God is my shepherd king. So God is the shepherd king. King David is the shepherd king. His ancestor Jesus is the shepherd king. And then in the Great Commission, Jesus tells us to go and make disciples of nations by teaching people to obey all that Jesus commanded. And that includes living a Jesus life. life. And so there's kind of a, a tradition of passing on this pastoral care that we read about in Psalm 23. Dear friends, anyone who regularly experiences the abundant provision of God can't help but notice the needs of others. Because God created humans to be his earthly ambassadors, it's incumbent upon us all and especially upon Christians who have received the gift of God's Holy Spirit to extend care on behalf of God. This may not be in Psalm 23, but it lines up with the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 25. Jesus puts the sheep on his right and the goats on his left, and he says to the sheep, come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. Naked, you clothed me. Sick, you visited me. In prison, you came to visit me. You came, you came to visit me. When the disciples asked the shepherd king Jesus when he'd been sick, thirsty, and naked, you recall the response. Jesus said, truly I say to you, to the extent that you do this to the least of one of these my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. Friends, who can help but notice the inequity in the distribution of the world's resources among the peoples of the earth, and the inequity also in the distribution of the church's resources in addition to the needs of the world? Most people are far less well-off than we are, and I think one of, the, one of the solutions to the problems that we cry out for to be solved in our world are for us to open our pockets and to be generous towards those particularly our brothers and sisters who are Christians across the world. So finally, it is about a firm commitment, not fearless cynicism, or not, not, um, not flagrant cynicism, but fearless commitment, faith in Christ, and firm commitment. And as I close, let me just encourage you to uh, think of one of those areas. Maybe this afternoon you have had flagrant cynicism in your mind and you need to deal with it. The text is real. God is real. 
He's not surprised by any of the things that happen to you. And he still wants to affirm that his ideal will for you is to do the Psalm 23 thing. And you can take that and bank on it. Maybe you're having a problem with fear and anxiety door and anxiety disorder. And you need to be reminded that though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you shall fear no ill, for thou art with me. God's rod, his police car, and his staff, his ambulance, are there. Maybe today for the first time, or all over again, you want to put your faith in Jesus. Perhaps you haven't understood the message of the gospel in, in the same way before, and God's call to you is simply for you to affirm that Jesus is the Son of God and to put your faith in him. And you do that maybe by saying a prayer. Dear God, I'm a sinner. I know I've messed up. I want you to come into my life. I want you to be the Lord of my life. And I ask you now to come into my life and for your spirit to be my guide. You can say that prayer on your own. You can say it with a friend. And any way you do it, make sure that you tell somebody else about it because uh, then you kind of join the community of faith and you're around people who will encourage you in your faith. And for most of us, I think it involves a recommitment to a firm commitment to be a source of blessing to others in the way that God is an abundant provider to us. Amen.